From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Has America become more racist? Well, earlier this year, the Pew Research Center attempted to answer that question and found that roughly two-thirds of adults do think it's more common for people to express racist views since Donald Trump became president. Other long-term trends, however, suggest an overall decline in both racist views and racist acts. What we do know is that it's become more segregated, at least in American schools, where levels of black and white segregation have remained relatively unchanged for 40 years, despite huge shifts in the diversity of student population. The causes and effects of racial isolation, assimilation, and how we talk about race is the life work of Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum. Her 1997 book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria, established her as an authority on the psychology of racism. She was later named president of Spelman College. After leaving that post and 20 years after the book's original publication, Dr. Tatum revisited it to reflect the nation's educational reality. She remains an in-demand speaker, scholar, and igniter of conversations that people generally avoid. And we are lucky to have her with us here in the studio today. Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum, welcome. Thank you so much, Virginia. Happy to be with you. So you witnessed resegregation in your lifetime. You call yourself an integration baby, born just a couple months after Brown versus Board of Education. How did that show up in your life and your family? Well, I would start out by saying I was born in 54, as you said, um, in Tallahassee, Florida. And my parents moved out of the South, really as part of the Great Migration, out of the Jim Crow South, in 1958. We moved to Massachusetts, where my father became the first African-American professor at Bridgewater State College, now known as Bridgewater State University. And I grew up in that small college town about 30 miles outside of Boston. You were one of few black families in Bridgewater. So what was your awareness of racial difference at that time? So I was certainly aware that we were one of few black families. I was. Um, I started school at the age of five, going on six. I was. I uh, went right into the first grade. I had the advantage of growing up with a mom who was a reading teacher, and I was her first student. So I learned how to read at home, and so was able to start school at an early age. And was always, for most of my life, the only black kid in my class. And mm-hmm. certainly I was aware of that difference. But... Um, When I think about the ways that racism shows up in people's lives, it was a relatively benign experience. It wasn't like I was being racially harassed or called names, but certainly I was conscious of the fact that I looked different than my classmates. And occasionally things would happen that would require some parental intervention. For example... In my neighborhood, we were the only black family, and there were lots of kids. We were in a neighborhood where people had large families. Our family had four kids in it, but our neighbors had five and, in one case, six children. And so there were lots of kids. And we were playing um, hide-and-go-seek, and we were doing the little rhyme that people do to determine who's going to be it. And the version I had learned when eeny, meeny, miny, mo catch a tiger by the toe, but the version that the kids in my neighborhood had learned used the racial slur um, in it. And so I came home and told my mother what had been said, and she went back. She told me to go back and teach them the tiger version, which I did. Wow. So that was your first racial conversation. <laughs> Imprinted a lifetime. Yes. Well, you did go on to go to Wesleyan in 1971. Did you study psychology there? I did. I was a psychology major. So did you and the black and brown kids sit together in the cafeteria or a student union at Wesleyan? 
Absolutely. In fact, one of the reasons I chose to go to Wesleyan in the fall of 1971 was because Wesleyan was, like a lot of small New England colleges, actively seeking African-American students. And I was um, aware that the population would be much more diverse than the little town I had grown up in. So I was seeking a more diverse experience and very much wanted at the age of 16, which is how old I was when I went to college, um, how I very much wanted to be part of a larger community of color, to have an experience that I had not yet had at home. So it was a great delight to me that there was a critical mass of students of color there, and I was more than happy to be sitting with them in, at the cafeteria table. Because why? What were the, what were they what were they reflecting back to you? Well, you know, certainly one of the things that you experience if you grow up um, as a person of color in the United States, particularly an African American, is a growing sense of your status as a marginalized group, and that was very apparent to me in 1971. In Massachusetts, one of the things that was happening was the uh, controversy surrounding school desegregation in Boston. Mm -hmm. And while I didn't live in Boston, um, it was on the nightly news. We saw the riots, I will call them, the violence um, within the uh, South Boston white community, the ways in which buses were being attacked with black kids on them. Um, There was a lot of conversation about racism and um, what was happening, not just in the nation, but you know, in the next city. And so I was very conscious of that. And one of the things that happened for me, being one of a few black kids in this mostly white town, was that people would often ask me what black people thought, as though I knew. (laughs) You were the spokesperson. Um, Right, you know. So I would be sitting in a social studies classroom in high school, and someone would say, well, you know, what do black people think about Busing, or what do black people think about school desegregation? Or, you know, what's it like to live in a ghetto? And in as much as I lived across the street from the high school, I didn't have a good answer to that question. But I was aware that people saw me as separate from them and somehow having access to information that they didn't have. Well, let's just hear a clip that reflects that. This is Ta-Nehisi Coates talking from, about his National Book Award winning book, Between the World and Me. For normal Americans, you know, once they, you know, rise up, you know, and get out of, you know, certain neighborhoods or go certain places, you know, they, they feel a kind of safety that black people never feel. Fear is one of the dominant emotions of the black experience. Fear. And it does no amount of money you can earn can ever take you away from that. You can be president of the United States. <laughs> Dr. Beverly Tatum is with us. She's president emerita of Spelman College, author of Assimilation Blues, and Can We Talk About Race, and Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? So this is something that you took on. You were in private practice, but then you went on to UC Santa Barbara and started teaching a course about the psychology of racism. And, and they were mostly white students, mostly who grew up in neighborhoods like the one that you grew up in, and were unaware of that reality that Ta-Nehisi Coates is talking about. Why was that a shift for you? Because it, it brought you to academia, didn't it? Yes. Well, I um, after I graduated from college, I went off to graduate school at the University of Michigan with the intent of getting a PhD in clinical psychology, which I did. And my expectation was that I would work as a therapist. I was particularly interested in child and family therapy. But along the way, I had the opportunity, like a lot of graduate students do, to teach uh, I taught as a graduate assistant at Michigan, but 
um, I worked for a short period of time at the University of California in Santa Barbara. And there I was asked to teach a course as an adjunct faculty member, part-time, on a part-time basis. But the course was called Group Exploration of Racism. And, you know, I was pretty naive. I was 26 years old at the time. I didn't have a lot of teaching experience. But I had been studying the experiences of African-American families in predominantly white communities. That was my dissertation topic. And I felt that I could teach that class, and so I took it on. And I discovered through the process of teaching just how few opportunities students, in this case mostly white students, had to have meaningful conversations about race, particularly with people who look different from themselves. So even though the university had a largely white population, my class was racially mixed, and students did, as part of the course experience, engage in very meaningful dialogue about what racism is, how it manifests itself in our society, how all of us are impacted by it, and they were encouraged as part of the course to think about what they could do about it. And so because it seemed to be such a powerful learning experience for them, and in some ways also for me, I became quite committed to continuing to teach about it, and did, and shifted my career goal away from being a, a practicing psychologist to a professor of psychology with a focus on teaching about racism. And this brings you many stages, but to hear why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria? Which is really the book that you emerged onto the national stage with that. Now, this was 17 years after you started teaching. So this was a question you were often asked. Why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria? Again, you're being put in the place of, uh, can you explain this, <laughs> these, these strange people to us or, you know, this otherness yes. to us? But this was in 97. The economy was good. It was before 9-11. The, the, the nation was at peace. Did you believe at that point that the progress that you'd witnessed in your life would continue? I did, I have to say. Um, certainly, I... As I said, I'm a child of the 50s. I was born in 1954. I often tell the story of my father's experience. He was as a, a professor, as I've mentioned, but when I was born, he was teaching in Florida at uh, Florida A&M University, which is a historically black institution. And he had a uh, undergraduate degree from Howard University, also an HBCU, and he'd earned a master's degree from the University of Iowa and wanted to pursue his doctorate, which is, of course, a necessary credential to advance in higher education, and would have liked to do that in Florida. But in the 50s, he, even though it was after Brown versus Board of Education, in 1954, Florida State University, which is also in Tallahassee, was still a segregated whites-only institution. Um, the state of Florida would not allow him to get his graduate degree there. But because of the Supreme Court decision, they were obligated to provide access. And the way they did that was to pay my father's transportation to another state. He traveled to Pennsylvania and earned his degree, his doctorate, at Penn State University. That's a workaround. <laughs> it is a workaround. And um, one of the things that happens when I tell people that story today is, you know, we all like, look, that's craziness. You know, first of all, why would you drive talent out of your state? And because, of course, after my dad got his degree, he had no interest in returning to Florida. He and in fact, it was after that point that we moved to Massachusetts. 
But of course, when I tell that story today, and I have told it at Florida State, uh, where I have been a speaker, they are quick to tell me that it's a very diverse campus today. And of course, it has been for many years now. Um, so we know that our society has changed. And I have been the beneficiary of some of those changes for sure. When I was ready to go to graduate school, I didn't have to think about, you know, which school will take me or not based on my race. I knew that I had many opportunities, many choices available to me, and certainly that's been true for my children. That said, in 1997, Bill Clinton was the president, and he launched what he called his Presidential Initiative on Race. I had the privilege of being in the audience at his first town hall meeting, which took place at the University of Akron in Ohio. And he talked about why he thought it was a good time to take on this tough topic. He said, we are a nation at peace. The economy is good. We have the institutional fortitude, the energy during a time of peace and prosperity to tackle the demons of racism in our society. And it was a very optimistic message that he provided, and I have to say I agreed with him that it was important for us to have these conversations and we should take it on. Unfortunately, we know that his presidency was disrupted in some ways by the Monica Lewinsky scandal and the work of his presidential commission went largely unreported. Many people don't even remember it when I raise it in my public presentations. But the fact is the sense of positive trajectory certainly seemed uh, to culminate. In 2008, following the election of President Barack Obama, USA Today did a poll and the majority of Americans said that they felt like his election was a positive sign of improvement in race relations. Whether they voted for him or not, people said they felt proud that America had been able to elect its first African-American president. And yet we know that since that time, there has been a tremendous backlash in terms of rise in uh, racial incidents as tracked by the Southern Poverty Law Center and certainly we have seen an escalation uh, since the 2016 election. Yeah, well, we're going to get to that right after the break. We'll take a quick break. My guest is Dr. Beverly Tatum, a psychologist, educator, author, president emerita of Spelman College. After the break, we'll come back with some of the deeply buried beliefs that we all have about race, consciously or not, and how they operate within us and what that all means. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott and continuing our conversation with Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum, an author, educator, psychologist, and one of the nation's foremost authorities on the psychology of racism. Can we talk about race as the title of one of her books? The question itself is part invitation and part interrogation of our capacity as individuals and as a nation to engage in genuine conversations about race. And that the kind of questions she's wrestled with in that book and in what has become a classic from 1997, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? 
Well, Dr. Tatum, you did a significant revision to that book in 2017 because the reality had changed. And I know you're asked a lot about whether you think there should have been more progress in those intervening 20 years. But one of the ways that you illustrate it is using the example of what if a child were born in 1997? What would the experience be like going through schools or life in America at that time? Sure. Well, if you were born in 1997, the same year that my book came out originally, fast forward in 2017, now you're 20 years old. But what does the world look like through your lens, right? So if you were born in 1997, you were four in 2001 when 9-11 happened. And while you might not remember that, you have certainly grown up in a post-9-11 context, marked by anti-Muslim rhetoric, for example. Um, you were 11 when the economy collapsed in 2008, which perhaps brought economic anxiety into your family life. You were still 11 when Barack Obama was elected. And at that age of 11 in 2008, you probably heard people talking about the fact that we were now in a post-racial society. And we didn't have to talk about racism anymore because obviously it had been fixed, right? As, <laughs> as we all know. Right, as evidenced by... President Obama's election. But fast forward to 2012, now you're 15, and a young black teenager named Trayvon Martin has been killed, and his killer has been um, vindicated, found innocent of his murder. When you were 17, a couple of years later, just a few years later, Michael Brown was shot in Ferguson, Missouri, and the protests associated with Black Lives Matter are erupting around the country. And fast forward to your college years, it's 2016. Maybe you're 19 years old and you are voting for the first time in a national election, and Donald Trump is elected. And just a few months later, Neo-Nazis and uh, Klansmen are celebrating that election in the streets of Washington, D.C. If you ask a 20-year-old in 2017 or today, have things gotten better, that person might say, it's not looking like better to me because the things that I reflect on, the changes that took place in the 50s, the Voting Rights Act, the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1964, all of the things that happened in my lifetime and changed the way that my family was able to conduct its business in the world. All that seems like ancient history mm. to somebody born in 1997. Well, and all these are huge, you know, environmental, political, social forces in the life of that now 20-year-old, or actually now they would be 22, Yes, if we were to continue the math. But inside of schools, this is something that you observe. They've become resegregated, or as you put it in your book, hyper-segregated. So, and this is not just in southern cities. In fact, it's it's even worse and more deadlocked yes. in, in cities in the north. So these are not just social forces, but this is policy decisions. These are legal decisions made by the Supreme Court. Can you bring us through why these setbacks in schools desegregation? May 2019 marked the 65th anniversary of the Brown versus Board of Education decision that declared legalized school segregation unconstitutional. And, you know, many people think, okay, well, that solved the problem. But in fact, there have been a number of Supreme Court decisions since then that have kind of chipped away 
at the impact of Brown. So you're talking about the intersection of attitudes and policy in many ways, and the law, obviously. This came up in one of the first of two debates between the 2020 Democratic candidates, the issue of busing. Senator, California Senator Kamala Harris criticized Joe Biden for crediting himself with working with senators who oppose busing. Let's hear just a little clip from that. Do you agree today that you were wrong to oppose busing in America then? Do you agree? I did not oppose busing in America. What I opposed is busing ordered by the Department of Education. That's what I opposed. Well, I there did was not a failure of, of states to, to integrate no, public schools in America. I was part of the, the second class to integrate Berkeley, the, California public schools almost two decades after Brown v. Board of Education. This revived a conversation about busing, and a common narrative is it was a failed policy. Busing failed. What do you think? Well, I think it's... Um, not quite accurate. So what we see is that, in fact, before the you know before court decisions made it more difficult to use busing as a strategy, um, we did find, particularly in the South, that schools desegregated fairly rapidly, and that uh, busing was an important tool. But what is, I think, sometimes overlooked when people say, well, you know, the problem with busing is not that, you know, schools are being desegregated, but isn't it horrible to make kids get on a bus when they could just walk down the street and go to neighborhood schools? But what is flawed in that argument is the ahistorical perspective. And what I mean by that is buses were used to take black kids well past the neighborhood school, you know, particularly in Southern communities, one of the characteristics of the South, you know, the sort of the plantation South, is that black people live in close proximity to white people. Um, And that has been part of the history. Because, you know, if you're working for someone, you have to be nearby, right? So um, what happened to a lot of African Americans in the days of segregation is that they were bused past the local white school to a less well-funded, less well-resourced black school. Buses have been used for lots of purposes. So when we say, you know, busing is a problem, what we're really saying is that there was a lot of resistance to school desegregation on the part of primarily white communities. There, You can certainly find some black people who said, you know, I don't want to bus my kid into a hostile community. Mm-hmm. I'm not in favor of busing either. But the fact of the matter is that the issue is really not the school bus. The issue is access to quality education. Well, and I think contemporary reports are that people do want to have their kids have the experience in a mixed, more diverse school, but proximity is still the major driving force. And and can you blame them on some level? Do you want to drive your kid 45 minutes across the town in the morning to bring them to school? Well, I have to say that there are a lot of people who do that 45-minute drive, but they're driving to a private school. Right. And so um, so I think that people are willing to drive if they see the experience as a superior one to the one that's available to them locally. Mm. Sometimes we use um, camouflaged language, and I think it's important to be clear what it is that people are seeking and what it is that they're avoiding. But you're right. There are surveys, as I cite in my book, of um, people who will say, yes, I want my child to have a diverse experience, but they don't want to be inconvenienced to get it. I'm speaking with Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum. She's president emeritus of Spelman College and author of Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria and other books, and including Can We Talk About Race? 
then you know let's i want to just go back to that for a second because there's there's an the camouflage language the unspoken assumption of why are all the ki- black kids sitting together in the cafeteria is that all the white kids are also sitting together in the the cafeteria so what does it mean to examine that question yeah well i think uh to go back to something you said earlier that I titled my book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? Because at the time that I wrote it, I was doing a lot of consultation in racially mixed schools, almost always in the North, where um, kids were participating in a voluntary desegregation program. So you would go to, into a school where kids were voluntarily getting on a bus, let's say in Boston, being bused into a suburban Massachusetts community, uh, and yet they'd get to the school and then they'd sit together. And so the principal of the school or the teachers in the school would say, why are all the black kids sitting together? Never asking the question, why are all the white kids sitting together? Which, of course, they were as well. And I think that when we, um, first of all, we notice the other in a way that we don't always pay attention to the people who are perceived as a majority. When we talk about why is it that kids of color would choose to gather together. And it's, of course, not just the kids of color. It might be the LGBTQ kids. It might be um, the Muslim kids in a largely Christian environment. The kids who are seen as somehow different from the norm are likely to seek out, particularly in adolescence, are likely to seek out other people who are having a shared experience because those other people understand what it feels like to be in class and have somebody ask you, what do the black people think? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that they're having a shared experience and can find support. And there's nothing wrong with that. I often say we spend way too much time thinking about where people sit in the cafeteria and not nearly enough time thinking about how are we engaging kids to think about and understand difference in the classroom. Hmm. And you write also in, in Can We Talk About Race that we labor under this assumption that we live and work and go to school in an integrated society, right? That we focus on the multi-representational images on television or in our office and buy into this kind of myth of integration. So Part of what part of what I read in your book is that this illusion that we are colorblind, that we're not really seeing it, is there's a payoff to that. What is that payoff in believing that we are all in this, you know, multiracial society getting along? Maybe maybe there are some bumps, but moving along together. Well, I you know, certainly it's important to say that there are lots of people who do get along together, you know. I mean, I think we should acknowledge that. Um and even Here in the city of Atlanta, you know, I can think of efforts among uh, community members to work together toward a common goal where people of color alongside white people are working on community revitalization, for example, of the historic west side of of Atlanta or other important projects of the city. So, So this is to say we know that there has been progress and multiracial coalitions, and those multiracial coalitions made it possible for President Obama to be elected. Uh, It was a multiracial coalition that um, galvanized behind the candidacy of Stacey Abrams, uh, making her run for governor historic in terms of the votes that she garnered, not just in communities of color, but also among white people. But having said all of that, I think that 
the people who are most likely to articulate a colorblind narrative are typically white people. And that narrative, I think, is one that gives them comfort, but is not necessarily an accurate description. Mm-hmm. And I've certainly, we've spoken to people on this program and other places about, they're, be, they're tired of explaining to white people what it means to be actively anti-racist. Is that something you can just throw your hands up and say, you know, I'm sick of trying to explain this to you? It's your problem? When someone says to me, like, you know, when a person of color says to me, you know, I'm tired, I've been working hard about this, and I feel like I'm not making any progress, I'm looking at the nation, we're moving backwards, you know, of course you don't want that person to throw up their hands and say, I'm done, you know. But at the same time, I often talk about the importance of self-care. There are times when you need to pause and say, I'm not going to that dialogue tonight. I need to take a little space for myself. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it's also important for white people to understand that you can read a book, you can have a book club, you can have a discussion with other white people without always having a person of color be your guide. Mm -hmm. Well, so what do we lose when we don't have that cross-racial dialogue, which is something, I mean, I know plenty of white people who exist in the bubble of their own wokeness. You know, we've got it together. We're not racists. So it's not an either-or conversation. This is not an either-or question. It is really a both-and question. And it is important for for people of color to work on their own internalized oppression, um, you know, and to do that in ways that feel safe. And sometimes that means in affinity groups with other people of color. And it's important for white people to do that work so that they come into the conversation ready to have it and then have cross-dialogue. So it's not Is it only cross-dialogue? Is it just same-race groups? It's both. Both are necessary. I write a lot about this in the last chapter of my book, uh, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria, the 2017 version. And one of the things I talk about are models of intergroup dialogue that are being instituted in colleges and universities around the country, even in some high schools. And that intergroup dialogue is very valuable. It's a great tool for bringing communities together and to deepen empathy. And empathy is important if we want people to take action. So model that for us. There are conversations that you have to have, including one that you had with uh, another white teacher at a predominantly white institution about giving a particular grade. Can you tell us that story? Sure. So let's uh, give a little bit more context. So um, this, I was a faculty member teaching a psychology course, and I had a young African-American woman in my class. And so she wrote a paper for my class, which, you know, had some good ideas in it, but was very poorly written. I gave her a C on it and suggested that she visit the writing center on campus to work on her writing, because knowing her long-term goal of being a graduate student, she was going to need to improve her her writing. And she came back to my office and was upset with me for this C on her paper, and even more upset about the comment that she needed to improve her writing. And she said, you know, I'm taking this other class with this professor, and he gave me, he gives me A's on my work. You know, what's up with this? (laughs) And, um, And I expressed some concern about why she was getting A's based on my observation of the strength of her writing. I called that professor and asked him about it. He was a colleague I'd known a long time, so we had a relationship. I wasn't a stranger to him. But I said, you know, I've just been with this student. We've just had this conversation. She tells me she's getting A's on your papers. 
you know, I gave her a C on the one she turned into me. I'm wondering how is that possible that she's getting A's in your class? In essence, he said, I'm giving her an A for effort. And I took a deep breath and I said, you know, I just have to say I don't think that's fair to her. I agree she works hard and, you know, we want to encourage her and I think she can be successful, but she's going to have to improve her writing. And if you tell her that her work is an A, it seems to me what you're doing is lowering your standard for her in a way that is not honest. And she can't grow if she doesn't get honest feedback. And if you would give honest feedback to all the white students in your class, but you're not giving this black student honest feedback, it seems to me you're treating her differently on the basis of her race, and that's not fair. Everybody needs honest feedback. And I, this is a, an issue that over, the, over my life as a, someone who's worked in education and done a lot of consulting, I have found among supervisors sometimes who are afraid or resistant, reluctant to give honest feedback. Let's assume a white supervisor working with a um, an employee of color sometimes doesn't want to give honest feedback for fear that they might be accused of being discriminatory. But in fact, not giving that honest feedback is discriminatory mm -hmm. because it doesn't allow the person the opportunity to improve. Well, you're a psychologist. You've been looking at this all your life. What is the? What do you think is the motivation or the hesitation? Does it lie in the root of how we even think about race in an embedded way? Well, it can. For example, sometimes people have lowered expectations. Like, I'm assuming this is the best she can do, therefore I'm not giving her feedback. That's a racist assumption, of course, based in a stereotype about uh, her intellectual capacity, maybe. But... Um, I want to come back to something we were talking about earlier, which is this notion that we should be, quote, colorblind. Mm. And I think that one of the things that we fail to um, unpack sometimes when we're using that language is what is implied. If I say that I'm colorblind, what am I saying? I'm saying that I don't see difference. I'm saying that I don't recognize that you're having a different experience in the world than a person who is white um, or of you know, of color, if if I'm assuming that I don't notice the things that make you who you are, your experiences in the world, the culture that you have grown up in, you know, if I don't notice those things, then I'm saying I don't notice something very important about you. And that is a problem. I don't want you to discriminate about, you know, against me because of what you notice. I don't want you to have... Um, stereotypical assumptions about me because of what you notice. But don't tell me you don't notice an important dimension of who I am as a person. That's the danger of the broad stroke, isn't it? And yes. The same thing. We are talking about the yes and, not a straight line when it comes to talking about race in America with Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum. It's a conversation she wants all of us to be having for a lot of reasons, for the good of our democracy, for one. I'm Virginia Prescott. We will get into that after a short break. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. We're back with On Second Thought from GPBM, Virginia Prescott, continuing a conversation with Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum, a psychologist, author, former president of Spelman College, He's done a lot of study on how race, educational inequality, social structures and policy are intertwined. And it's not just in schools. A recent report from 247wallstreet.com found that four of the top 25 most segregated cities are in the state of Georgia. Albany clocks in at number three and Macon is at number 11. 
Residential and social isolation compound differences that surfaced during the Obama presidency, as we heard from Dr. Tatum earlier, and even more overtly after the election of Donald Trump in August of 2017. On the streets of Charlottesville today, the hate boiling over white supremacists and counter-protesters fighting with fists and clubs. Confederate flags on full display, the governor declaring a state of emergency, and that mayhem unfolded for hours before President Trump finally weighed in. Researchers at the University of Chicago found that white supremacist groups have been further emboldened by Trump's presidency and noted a statistically significant rise in racist violence since the election. Active racism is, of course, reprehensible and destabilizing force in any democracy, but Dr. Tatum says passive racism is also destructive. Now, you do urge people to look at white identity. This is this is a really interesting time to be talking about this because we're living at a time when white grievance, according to a um, 2017 poll that I read, 55% of white people think that white people are the least advantaged and most discriminated against. So first, your response to that, white people feel like they're discriminated against. It is um, a consistent finding among uh, pollsters, you know, in the last few years. And yet there's no evidence to suggest that there's any accuracy to that assumption. You know, if we look at statistics, whether it's access to housing, access to employment, access to education, access to health care, how long you'll live. I mean, all of those statistics still point to the ways in which white people are advantaged in our society. Mm -hmm. To say that white people as a group are advantaged is not to suggest that individuals don't sometimes struggle. But if we look overall at the data, there's no evidence to suggest that there's any systemic discrimination against white people as a group. As you urge people to look at their own white identity, what does that contain and why is it important that that is a departure point for moving forward? Well, one of the things that's important to say, speaking as a psychologist, is that we all have a racial identity. And in a healthy society, we would all feel good about that aspect of our identity in a race-conscious society. Now, some people, some of your listeners might say, there's only one race, it's the human race. And they are technically correct. Um, certainly, there is only one race, the human race. But socially, in our society, we have been categorizing groups for a long time. And as a consequence of those categorizations, we have created social and cultural environments where we've come to understand that there is meaning attached to racial and ethnic groups. The intent, however, of my writing and the work that I talk about is for people not to feel like they don't have that identity, but not to assume inferiority or superiority. So when I talk about understanding white identity, um, I'm not talking about um, embracing white supremacy or becoming a white nationalist. Um, what I'm talking about is recognizing that there are dimensions to our identity that make a difference to our experience in the world. Well, that other dimension of it, of course, is the white supremacist idea, the idea that we are losing ground because I am very, very well aware of my racial identity or, let's say, my membership as a white person mm -hmm. in, in society. And now all of these other, you know, demographic shifts are going on and more and more brown people. 
Asian people, you know, all sorts of different people are coming into this white, quote unquote, environment. And as we know, you know, if we look at bloodlines, they're not always absolutely 100% pure European white, sure, right? Of course. But so, but this is the fight, right? This is the demographic shift that has people riled up an idea of protecting their white hegemony or their heritage. I think heritage is the word that's often used. So I'm Curious. Yeah, let me say a word about yes, that. Yes, please. So, so I think it's very important to acknowledge that the demographics of the United States are changing. So if we go back to 1954, um, in 1954, the U.S. population was 90% white European American, 10% everyone else. And when someone says, you know, let's go back to that time, it's hard to separate a statement like that from a, a wish to be back when it was 90% white. Fast forward to 1965, and the Immigration Act of 1965 opened the borders to more immigrants from Asia, Africa, Latin America, really everywhere, in addition to the door that had always been open for European immigration. Mm -hmm. The fact of the matter is the world's population is largely of color. So if you're talking about any place outside of Europe, you're talking about populations of color. Today, if we're talking about the U.S. population, the adult, if you talk about the whole population, young people and adults, we would talk about a population that's about 67% white, about two-thirds white now, and about 18% Latinx about 13% African-American, about 6% Asian, much more diverse, about 2% um, Native American, indigenous, and multiracial. So what we can see is that the population has changed rapidly. And if it's important to you, if you're a person who says, I want to live in an all-white nation, you're a little freaked out by that. Um, I have to say, as someone who grew up in a largely white community and experienced myself as a minority, I am not threatened by the fact that there are more people of color. Um, that's not a concern of mine. Uh, so the question is, how do you feel about that population shift? Um, there are certainly, I know, lots of white people who would say, I welcome that diversity. But there are certainly some people who will say, it scares me. And I think we feel that tension, the recognition that you know, we are part of a global society and our nation, the United States, is increasingly representing that global population. Um, and then there are other people who will say, you know what, we started out as a European nation and we want to stay um, largely European. That's the tension. Do you ever have conversations with active racists in your conversations uh, about race? I have had the um, experience of doing workshops in places where sometimes people were not there voluntarily, huh. <laughs> you know, uh -huh. um, maybe where uh, organization, a school has said we're going to have a day-long professional development and I'm there to do the presentation and some of the people who are there don't agree with what I have to say and would prefer not to be there. I've had that experience um, numerous times, but I will say that for me, the question that is most important is not does someone consider themselves actively racist or passively racist. The question that's most important is are you actively working against racism? 
And so if you can say, yes, I'm actively working against racism, I am more than happy to actively work against racism with you, whoever you are. If we look at the rise of white supremacists and and very active vocal white supremacists you know we may not look at it online but it's absolutely there and and actually a disturbingly few clicks away from you know normal searches for a lot of things especially if you're a young white male that Mm -hmm. is the demographic that uh, i think most often falls into that rabbit hole Mm -hmm. then it is all around us and this is a concern that i think a lot of people have how do we even have a conversation about about that. If somebody isn't willing, if somebody is not actively working against it, is there even a chance for talking about race? Well, one of the things that I think is really important um, to think about is the role of parents, right? One of my uh, chapters in my book is how to talk to young children about race. And I know from my experience having worked in this area for a long time, that there are lots of parents, well-intentioned white parents, who don't know how to talk to their kids about this topic. And because they're hesitant for doing it or concerned about doing it wrong, sometimes they just don't do it. And in the silence, other information fills in. So there's a very interesting book called Rising Out of Hatred, The Awakening of a Former White Nationalist. It's written by Eli Saslow. But it's about Derek Black, who is the son of the founder of the founder of Stormfront.org. And Derek was homeschooled and raised in a actively racist family where they were actively discussing um, white nationalist ideology. And he was encouraged to really become a leader in that movement. And he went to the New College of Florida. And at and didn't that, he have a, a, a Jewish roommate or something? How's at it, that uh, college, yeah. yes. At that college, he met people he'd been taught to not like. He started to question some of what he had grown up with and came to realize how harmful um, those ideas were to the point where he ultimately spoke up against that ideology, putting himself at odds with his family Mm -hmm. and all the people who had loved him as he'd grown up. And yet he felt he had to speak up, particularly in the face of instances like the Charlottesville incident, where people were being harmed and hurt by these ideas. So I use that as an example because what was so transformative for him was not, you know, a workshop, but getting to know people as individuals and recognizing that the rhetoric he'd been taught to believe didn't match up with the reality of the lives of the people he was getting to know. But this is a story that we've heard before, right? That that the idea that people, many of the people who are most vehemently anti-immigrant live in almost completely white populations in the very north of the country or in the Midwest, where they don't have interactions with people who are from Central America or, you know, well, other places like that. So well, they, it's not just the folks living in Idaho. I, I mean, I'm, I, not, I just, I'm not by any means no, saying no. that's it. But I this mean, is a huge part of it. Yeah, but what I want to say is actually there. Um, there's a statistic in my book about a um, survey that was done about social networks, 
And the survey was done, you know, I want to say 2014, might have been uh, around that time. Anyway, the survey showed, uh, in terms of the respondents, 75% of white people who responded indicated that they lived in social networks, that their own social network was entirely white. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are lots of people who are racially isolated, who don't have daily interaction with folks whose life experience is different from their own or who look different from from the way they do. But I think even if you do live in an all-white community, you can still be working against racism. One of the things that... um, I learned from working with my students at the places where I taught. And I served as president of Spelman College for 13 years. But prior to that uh, experience, I was working in predominantly white institutions. And when I was teaching my psychology of racism class, my classes were always majority white. And a lot of those students would say, you know, now that I have been reading and learning about the way racism operates in our society, I see it all around me in ways that I didn't see it before. So I guess what I would say is that if we don't pay attention, we can't make change. In order to change, we have to pay attention. And that is at the heart, I think, of what um, my books are intended to do, to help people recognize how racism is operating in our society, why we need to pay attention and talk about it, so ultimately we can change it. What do you think if you were to update? You could update any of these books, right, at this point. But what do you think in 20 more years, what story will you be telling about America? In 20 more years, I'll be 85 years old and I'm not writing another book. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I read Dr. King's book, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community, um, on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of his assassination. Uh, That was April 2018. And when I read that book, which he wrote in 1967, I was struck by a comment he made, uh, a point he made, in which he said, the line of progress is never straight. We are always taking two steps forward. I'm paraphrasing now, two steps forward and one step back. We, after every period of progress, there's always a period of pushback. And If we're honest, we can obviously see that we're in a period of pushback right now. But what gives me encouragement is the knowledge that if you look over the arc of history, after every period of pushback, there's a period of progress again. So the question simply is, how long will it be before we have forward movement again? And I think that's entirely up to us. We as a nation, each of us as individuals, has the power to push forward for positive social change. And if we don't like what we see right now, we can do it differently. Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum, thank you so much for speaking with us. It's been my honor. Thank you. My guest, Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum, is a psychologist, an educator, and author. We have a list of more on her books. She's president emerita of Spelman College and somebody we're lucky to get a little chance to talk about race with and other things. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Jake Troyer, and The Raven Taylor. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Our interns are Allison Kraussman and Jessica Lowell. Amy Kiley is senior producer. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thank you so much for spending some time with us on On Second Thought.